You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. If any of you needs a Bible, go ahead and just put your hand in the air and make sure one of our ushers gets you a Bible so you can follow along. And um, also those of you who like to read the Bible, follow along on your phone. We encourage you to use the Version Bible app because we have live notes in there. So if you go to the live section, you can look and you can find our notes. You can follow along. You can keep track, take your own notes in that app. It's a, it's a cool thing. So go ahead and check that out. And uh, we're in the book of Exodus this morning. We're beginning a new series today. The series is called Be Set Free. And in this series, what we're doing is we're studying the life of Moses, who's one of the greatest figures of the entire Bible, you know, a really iconic figure. And we're, as we're doing that, we're going to be studying some of the most defining moments in not only the history of, that the Bible tells, but in the history of the world. But even more than that, what we're studying in this book are some of the most important events in what we call redemptive history. And redemptive history is God's work throughout history and still even today of bringing salvation and liberation to broken people in this world. So let's go ahead and read our text and then we'll pray. So Exodus chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shifra and the other Puah, he said, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we come to your word today, that you would speak to us through it, that you'd open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, and enlighten the eyes in our hearts and our minds to understand your word and how it applies to us. 
Lord, we pray that uh, as we do these things, we would not just be hearers of the word, but Lord, that we would be transformed by it, that we'd be transformed into doers of the word, that these things that we read today, that we study, would be living and active, that you would speak into aspects of our lives where you want to do work and you want to do your transformative work. Lord, we yield ourselves to you this morning and we give our ears and our hearts and our minds over to you during this time. And we pray that you'd speak to us and that we'd hear and receive. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the immediate questions that comes up whenever we study a particular book of the Bible is, of course, why this book? I mean, we've got 66 books here. Why this one in particular? I think that's particularly the case when it comes to books from the Old Testament. Uh, On previous occasions when we've studied Old Testament books, people have asked me, uh, why are we studying the Old Testament? It's just so old, right? Like, I mean, mean, wouldn't it be better to just study about Jesus? Isn't that what we're here to do? And the answer is, yes, that is what we're here to do. And the reason we are studying the Old Testament is because we are studying about Jesus. You see, there are two very important things that you must understand about the Bible to understand any particular passage in the Bible. Number one, the Bible at its essence is a story. Uh, The Bible at its essence is a story. And from beginning to end of this story, It is about Jesus. The second thing is this. You cannot really understand who Jesus is and the significance of why he came and what he did unless you understand the Old Testament. And so it is uh, something I really look forward to is studying the Old Testament together as a church because in it we see Jesus. We see God's plan through history. Now many people, when you ask them, what is the Bible? What's the nature of the Bible as a book? Well, many people tend to think that the Bible in its nature is a collection of ancient writings which talk about various things like the history of Israel and the life of Jesus and the development of Christianity. Others would say, you know, the Bible is kind of a collection of moral teachings and ancient wisdom which is kind of interspersed with stories to illustrate those teachings so that we can understand them. But when you really look at the Bible and you give it a closer look, what you find is that the Bible is actually something much better than either of those things. It's something much better. Here's what the Bible is. It is a single, unified, it is a cohesive story, which is actually interspersed with teachings to help explain the story. Okay, and so the fact that the Bible tells a story, that it's one grand story, is all the more amazing when you consider how the Bible came to be. You know, the Bible is not just one book that was written at one time by one person or a group of people collaborating together. No, what we have here in our hands is something amazing. 66 different books written over a period of 1,700 years by 40 different authors, most of whom never met each other. They wrote in different languages and even on different continents. And when you take all of these different writings and you put them together, they come together like an amazing puzzle mosaic that tells one cohesive story and that all just bears witness to the fact that what we hold here in our hands is no ordinary book it is something truly of divine origin so what is this story that the bible in all of its books together tells us it's a story of four key events you could really boil it down to four key events and here's what they are creation fall redemption and restoration, God's good creation, man's fall into sin and rebellion against God, God's work of redemption, 
and then ultimately culminating in restoration. That is the story which in all the other details the Bible is telling us. God is telling us in the Bible and the hero of that story is Jesus. So whichever part of the Bible you happen to be reading at any given moment, you must read it with the understanding of how that particular story fits into the greater story that the Bible is telling. Let me give you an example. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus has died and then rose from the dead, but his disciples don't yet know that he's risen from the dead, okay? Jesus appeared to his disciples. He kind of snuck up on them is what he did, right? And, and the disciples, they were walking down a certain road. It was the road to Emmaus, which was a nearby town. And Jesus comes up, up kind of alongside them and, uh, and starts kind of chatting with them. And at first they don't realize it's Jesus, which is pretty understandable because they think that Jesus is dead. So of course they're not expecting to see him. And so they were, the disciples, he comes up, he starts talking to them. And how are they feeling? Well, they're completely distraught. I mean, they are crushed. They are destroyed. And Jesus says to them, you guys look terrible. What is wrong? What's going on? Why, why do you guys look so upset? And they say, what, do you live in a cave or something? Like, do you not know what's been going on? Everybody knows about this. Don't you, haven't you heard about the, what's been going on in Jerusalem for the past couple days? They executed a man named Jesus, who many people, including us, thought was going to be the Savior. But now he's dead. They killed him. I mean, and so we're, we don't know what to do with ourselves. And Jesus says to them, here's what he says in Luke 24. He says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And then here's, here's the key. This is awesome. He says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you catch that? Super important. Beginning with Genesis, and then the next book of the Bible, Exodus, and then throughout the entire Old Testament, the laws, the genealogies, the stuff you skip over, right? The histories, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets, the whole way through. He explained to them how all of it was about him. You see, here's the deal. They knew the Bible stories, right? Like a lot of people. They knew the Bible stories, but they didn't know the story that all the stories together tell. You see, they, you can never really understand fully any given story in the Bible unless you understand how that story fits into the story of the Bible, of God's good creation, which has fallen into corruption because of sin, but which God is actively working at redeeming through Jesus Christ until an ultimate day of restoration. And what that means for us as we now open to the book of Exodus is that this is not only a story about some things that happened a long time ago, but this is our story. This is the true story of the world, right? This is a story that is relevant to our lives. And as we consider how God is working in these people's lives that long ago, we also see how God is doing his work of redemption in our lives as well. So the title of this series is Be Set Free. And this title of today's message is The Setting of for salvation. There are three important things that we're going to see I would like to show you in this text which we just read a few minutes ago. Number one, a shared predicament. Number two, God's presence in difficult times. And number three, God's providence in difficult times. So a shared predicament, God's presence and God's providence in difficult times. Let's begin by talking about this shared predicament. Now, since the Bible is a story and not a textbook, 
Uh, you know, in a textbook, if you want to know what a particular term means, well, then you just go to the glossary in the back and you can say, okay, there's a dictionary definition of what that term means. But because the, Bi- the nature of the Bible is it's a story and not a textbook, if you want to know what certain words that the Bible uses means, right, like uh, salvation or sin or faith or providence, what do those words even mean? The Bible doesn't give you a dictionary-style definition of them. Rather, if you want to know what those words mean. If you want to know what faith is, here's what the Bible says. You have to ponder the life of Abraham. You have to enter into the life of Abraham and read his story. If you want to know what providence means, you have to enter into the life of Joseph and see it at work in his life. If you want to know what sin is, well then you need to read the book of Genesis and you need to see what sin is. You need to see what it looks like and the effects that it has and what it did to God's original good creation, his original design for the world. And if you want to know what salvation is, if you want to know what that word means, there is no better place to go than Moses and the book of Exodus where God is revealed as the one who saves where God is revealed as the one who rescues, the one who saves, the one who leads us out of bondage and sets us free. And the big question that this book poses to you and I for us to ask ourselves is this. Have you been set free? Have you been set free? Now maybe you say, me? What do I need to be set free from? Well, let's think about that. Here at the beginning of Exodus, the story we just read, the setting of this story of salvation is that the people of Israel are in bondage to e- in Egypt. In verses 1 through 7, the opening kind of setup for the chapter here, we read about how the children of Israel had come down to Egypt in the time of Joseph. Now we read about that at the end of the book of Genesis, that the Israelites came to Egypt to escape a famine in their land. And at that time, they were an extended family of about 70 people. And because Joseph was one of Pharaoh's top officials, he had, he had helped Egypt plan for the famine and, and survive this famine that came upon the world at that time. And Pharaoh liked Joseph. I mean, how could he not? And, and he welcomed Joseph's extended family to come down into Egypt. And he, he welcomed them and he gave them land so that their family could live and farm and settle down and do their thing. And the land that he gave them was in a region called Goshen, which is in the Nile Delta. Now, you know, Egypt's basically a very deserty country, except for the Nile Delta, which is very fertile and very green. It's a great place for farming. So when you think of 70 people doing their own thing, you know, farming in their, making their own village, doing their own thing, that's not a big deal, right? Especially when you compare that to the great empire of Egypt. But what happened, we read, is that after a couple generations, they're no longer 70 people. What, what started as a large family has now become a small nation, and the king of Egypt felt very threatened by a growing group of people living within the borders of Egypt who had their own distinct cultural identity and language. See, these people, these Hebrews, even though they lived in Egypt, they didn't consider themselves Egyptians. They considered themselves Hebrews, and and that was their identity. Historians tell us that at this time, Egypt was feeling particularly threatened by the great Hittite Empire, which was just to the north of them in modern-day Syria and eastern Turkey. And in verse 8 of this chapter, we read that the king of Egypt was concerned that if war were to break out between probably Egypt and the Hittites, 
that the Israelites would fight against Egypt on the side of their enemies. So what does the king do? It says in verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And it says they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They took the Hebrews and they subjected them to slavery. Now, here's something interesting. If you look at this text in the original language, in Hebrew, it actually uses the word abad five times in a row, in the same sentence, actually. In the course of one sentence, he uses the same word five times. Now, that's incredibly repetitive. And so when they translated this into English, because it doesn't sound good to use the same word five times in one sentence, they use some synonyms like slavery and, and things like that. But here's what it says in the original text. Here's how it would read. If you were reading in Hebrew, this is what it would sound like. It said, they ruthlessly forced the people to serve them and they made their lives hard with bitter service. In all kinds of service, in all their service, they ruthlessly made them serve. Do you see how repetitive that is? Over and over, service, 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 serve. Now, now here's why that's interesting, right? This word abad, it kind of gets washed out in our English translation, but again, five times used in the same sentence. Why is that word such a big deal? Here's why. Later on in the book of Exodus, here's what's going to happen. God is going to send a man named Moses in to speak to Pharaoh. And do you know what he's going to say? Do you remember the Charlton Heston movie? Charlton Heston goes into Pharaoh and what does he say? He says, let my people go, right? No, that's actually not what he says in the Bible. That's what Charlton Heston says. But if you read the Bible, that's actually not what he says. Uh, Ten times in the Bible, here's what Moses actually says. He says every time, let my people go so that they may serve me, so that they may worship me. Let us go out into the wilderness. Why? So that they may serve me. Okay, so always, he never talks about letting the people go just so they can go do whatever they want. It's always, let my people go so that they may serve, same word, by the way, abad, so they may serve me. Do you get what I'm saying here? In other words, there's a distinction being made between two different kinds of service, serving two different kinds of things, serving God versus serving anything or anyone else. And that's really what this is trying to point out to us. Either you're serving the true and living God or you are serving something or someone else. And if you are serving anything other than God, then you are not free. You are not free, but in fact, you are in bondage. See, one of the things about the book of Exodus, maybe you know this if you've read it, is that the first part of the book is action-packed, right? I mean, it's like uh, bushes are catching on fire, rivers are turning to blood, there's frogs everywhere, the Red Sea splits in half, Moses is the last action hero. It's exciting. But then you get to the second half of the book, and it's a lot less exciting. i got to just give you a heads up right now. And we're going to have to figure out how to navigate that when we get there, and we will, and don't worry, I'm not going to crush you with boredom at that time. But I just want to say, it's a lot less exciting. There's no more uh, things catching on fire. There's no more rivers turning to blood. The second half of the book is not miracles and blood and fire. Rather, it is page after page of instruction, detailed instruction of how to build the tabernacle, which was kind of their portable worship center, which they used during the time after they left Egypt and they're in the wilderness. 
it was kind of a set up and tear down church, you might say, kind of like what we do here at Whitefields, if that makes any of you feel better who are on the, on the set up teams. And so uh, the second half of this book is about, is page after page of detailed instruction about how to worship. And it couldn't be any more different. It couldn't possibly be more different than the beginning of the book, which is like an action movie, right? But in all of that, it's really easy to miss the big picture and the big point that that dichotomy between these two halves is communicating to us. And that's this. The book of Exodus begins in bondage, but it ends in worship. Do you catch that? It, whereas Genesis begins with creation and God and man in relationship, and it ends in all kinds of problems. Exodus begins in bondage and ends in freedom, and that freedom is communicated in worship to God. It's the story of how God set his people free from bondage to sin, and he leads them out into true freedom. You know, but the way that many people today think about freedom is that freedom means being your own master, not having anyone tell you what to do, doing whatever you feel like doing and being able to live life any way that you please. We tend to think that freedom means let my people go so they can go and be their own masters and do whatever they want to do. But what the Bible's telling us here in the book of Exodus is that true freedom personally and spiritually isn't just let my people go, but let my people go so that they may serve me. And the point is this, no matter what, you will serve something. It's, it's not a question of will you serve something or not. It is a it, fact is you will serve something. The question is, what will you serve? There will be something which has mastery over your life. And unless that something is God, then you are in bondage. Then you are a slave. You're not truly free. Anything you center your life upon, you will be a slave to that thing. And what God wants to do in your life is set you free from whatever it is that you're in bondage to, whatever has mastery over your life other than him. And here's the big message of the book. The journey, this journey of liberation, this journey out of bondage and into freedom will never be complete until it finds its destination in absolute and utter devotion to God and God alone. Think about this. Everybody lives for something, right? Everybody has something in their life that drives them, that, that shapes their decisions, that motivates them. It's the thing which you feel, as long as I have that, then I will be okay. Then my life will be okay. Maybe it's as simple as just wanting to be liked. As long as I have that, as long as people think that I'm a good person, then I'll be okay. Maybe it's something in regard to personal accomplishments or, or school or work or business or with your family. As long as this is in place in my life, as long as I have this, then I will be okay. If I have that, then I will be happy. And maybe it's something you already have. Maybe it's something you don't have yet, but you are working towards it. But think about this. If there is something that you must have, if your happiness, if your being okay depends on something so greatly that you must have it, then guess what? You are a slave to that thing. Your heart is chained to that thing. You must have it. See, if you want to know what those things are in your life that you are in bondage to, so to say, those things that, let's put it this way, the things that have mastery over you, there's one big test. What, under what circumstances would you be willing to compromise your own deeply held convictions 
in order to get something or in order to keep something? Is there any situation in which you would compromise your own convictions? For example, you may believe that it is wrong to lie, but what are those situations where you catch yourself or you find yourself not being completely truthful in order to attain something or in order to keep something? That's a big red flag that there's something that has mastery over you. Have you ever heard someone use the phrase, I would kill for that? See, everybody, the person who says that, they understand. See, that's exactly it. They understand that killing people is wrong. They themselves believe that killing people is wrong. But what they're saying is, if there were something that I wanted so badly that I, that I had to compromise my own convictions in order to do it, I would. You see, if there's something like that in your life that you want so badly that you would be willing to go against your own deeply held convictions of right and wrong in order to get it, then that's a big red flag that that thing has mastery over you and that you are not free. You see, only if God is at the center of your life and his love is the source of your security and his pleasure with you is the source of your significance only then will you be truly free because then, no matter what happens, no one can ever take that away from you. So again, let me ask you, what is the thing that you live for? What is the supreme focus of your life? Paul the Apostle, he talks about this in Romans chapter 6 where he says this, he says in Romans six sixteen, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? Whatever you choose to obey, you become the slave or the servant of that thing. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God. So if you become a slave to whatever you obey, then you become a slave to God, right? God becomes your master, he says, and that leads to righteousness. And he goes on to say, in that same chapter, Romans chapter 6, he goes on to say that what it means to be a Christian is that whereas you used to be a slave to sin, now you have been set free and now you are serving, again, that's the operative word, serving God and you have become a slave to righteousness. This is why in, in some of Paul's letters, Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You know what a bondservant was? A bondservant was a slave by choice. It was a person who chose that life because they wanted to be with that master because he was such a good master. And that's how Paul describes his relationship to Jesus. I serve him. Because I want to. Because I love to. I am his servant by choice. So Paul describes in the next chapter, in Romans chapter 7, he describes a time in his life when he realized that he was in bondage. That there were things in his life that had mastery over him. And even though they knew that he knew that those things were wrong, it was as if he could not stop doing them. He, he did them anyway. And he says, I hated myself for it. I knew that what I was doing was wrong. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I found myself doing it and I hated myself because of it. I wanted to stop, but yet I couldn't. How many of you can relate to that? He realized, I'm not free. And finally... He cried out, he tells us. He cried out and he said, who can set me free from this bondage that I am in? And in the very next verse, he crescendos on this discovery of this answer where he says, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord for the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. You see, Paul was set free. And as a free man, he gave his life to Jesus because he realized no matter what, you will serve something. The question is, what will you serve? The only way to be truly free is to make God the one who has your utter 
and full devotion. And that's why Paul says, I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. You know, there's an interesting phrase that Jesus said, which for years I was confused by. Maybe some of you are confused by it too. Let me, let me share it with you. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, Jesus says this phrase, which is often quoted, but I always, you know, I heard it quoted, and then I was like, but I'm not sure that I understand that, or it doesn't seem to make sense. Here's what he said. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now here's why I found this verse confusing. Maybe you're tracking with me. Because what's a yoke? A yoke is something that you put on the neck of an ox so that they can do work for you. So that they can pull a plow or so they can pull a cart and what Jesus is saying, those of you who have been weighed down and with heavy burdens, come to me and I will give you rest from those burdens. That's great, right? He's going to take away your burdens. Awesome. But wait, how does he say that he's going to give you rest? By putting a yoke upon you, by putting something on your neck. And I'm like, wait a second. So you're saying if I've been worn down by heavy burdens and you're going to remove those burdens, which sounds good until now, but then you're going to put a yoke on my neck? Wouldn't that be just another burden? Aren't you putting me back to work, right? I, I, but think about this. And this is really the key. Who is the person, who is the one who puts a yoke on the ox? His owner, right? The master of the ox is the one who puts his yoke on the ox. And so what Jesus is really describing here is a change of ownership, Right? A change of ownership, a change of masters. And what he's saying is, leave your old master, come to me, and put on my yoke. I'll be your master now. And he's saying, whoever you are, and whatever you have been in bondage to, come to me, make me your master, and I will set you free. But you say, wait a second, aren't you putting a yoke on my neck? Right? Am I really free? And Jesus says, no, you understand, my yoke is different. He says, my yoke is easy, and that's an unfortunate translation, I think, to say easy because we think it's not hard work. But you know what that word means, and it's translated this in some of your Bibles. The word is translated pleasant. Pleasant. Remember Exodus? Remember the kind of service they were in? They ruthlessly made the people of Israel serve them, and they made their lives bitter with hard service. Jesus is saying, my lordship is not like that. It's not burdensome. It's not grinding. It won't crush you. If you make me the Lord of your life, if you come to me and make me your master, then what you will find is that my lordship over you is pleasant. It's life-giving. It's delightful. So this is the first point, a shared predicament. In the book of Exodus, the setting for salvation of the people of Israel was a predicament. They are in bondage. They are not a free people. They were serving something, and that something was something other than God. And the same is true of us, you see. This is our predicament as well. We're in the same predicament in our natural state, all of us. This is the state that people are in. We are in bondage. We are serving something other than God. And whatever it happens to be in your life, it's a ruthless taskmaster that eventually it will make your life bitter with hard service. And what you need is, what we need is, salvation. 
you need to be set free. And the promise of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come, the greater than Moses. He has come to set you free from whatever bondage you are in, and he did it by giving his life as a ransom for yours. You will only be truly free when you make him Lord of your life. And so let me ask you this today. Have you done that? Have you taken that step? Have you been set free? Have you entered into that ultimate freedom of making him the Lord of your life? If you haven't, I encourage you to not leave, so, not leave here today without doing so. That brings us to our second point, and that's this. God's presence in difficult times. You know, it certainly was a difficult time for the people of Israel. And yet, in spite of that, it says in verse 12 that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. That's great, right? Well, kind of, but here's the problem with it. What happened as a result of them multiplying and spreading abroad? The result was something even worse than slavery. The king of Egypt ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys who were born to the Hebrews. This was not only infanticide, this is genocide. Because if there are no boys, then within only one generation, the Israelite nation will cease to exist. But the, the midwives refuse to obey that order, right? They have a higher authority. They answer to God above Pharaoh and they choose to do an act of civil disobedience by refusing to kill any of these babies. And God is pleased with this decision. And that's good, right? And it says that they continue to get strong and, and, uh, and multiply. Super. Except, again, what's the result of that? At the end of the chapter, Pharaoh commands that all the people of Egypt are now to go and find and destroy Hebrew male babies and cast them into the river and drown them. Now I want you to think about this. It's so easy that we know this story in a way, right? It's kind of intuitive, but it's hard to really put yourself in that. It's really hard to imagine what this was like. Imagine, understand this. He empowered every Egyptian citizen to terrorize the Hebrew people, and the Hebrew people are not allowed to fight back. Right? So if you're an Egyptian and you see some Hebrews at the market or just walking down the street and they've got a baby, you can walk right up to them, take the baby out of their hands. They're not allowed to fight back. Check, see if that's a baby boy or a baby girl. And if it's a boy, not only were you allowed to kill it, you were expected and ordered to put that baby to death. Imagine groups of Egyptian people Zealous Egyptian people just walking into homes of Hebrew people and looking for babies and taking babies away from their homes, away from their mothers. Imagine crying mothers. This is a horrific, horrific situation. And here's the thing I want you to notice today. This is terrible. Terrible things are happening. Something, rather someone though, in this text seems curiously absent. And did you notice who that might be? It's God. Did you notice that God is almost not even mentioned? As all these terrible things are happening, people are dying, babies are being killed, people are being chained and taken into slavery, and the question the text poses to us by not mentioning God, it, it elicits the question, where is God? Where was God at this time? Where is God when all these terrible things are happening? Now let me ask you, have you ever felt that way? You look around and you're like, well, that was really bad. That was horrific. Where was God when that was happening? In this chapter, we're watching things go from bad to worse to really, really worse. And it seems as if God is absent. And in a way, it's written in a very brilliant way because the way it's written reflects how we often feel 
during times of difficulty. When you've prayed for that thing or when you see this thing happen, you feel powerless and things are going wrong all around you. Your world is falling apart and you say, God, where are you? Where are you right now? Everything's falling apart and yet it feels like you're not even here, that, that you're not even hearing us. You know, today is 9-11. It's been 15 years. You know, people still wonder, where was God on 9-11? When Egyptian troops rolled into Hebrew villages and started putting chains on people and started carrying them away, where was God then? When bad things happen, it feels like God is absent. And the way this chapter is written is brilliant because it reflects that feeling. It conveys that feeling that we feel. But here's the other thing. It also shows us something which they couldn't have seen at the time when these things were happening. And that's an important perspective which you and I need to have when we go through these difficult times. And that is this, even though they didn't feel like God was there, even though they couldn't sense God with them, he absolutely was. Even though it seemed to them like God wasn't doing anything, he absolutely was working and doing something very significant. And how do we know that? Well, that brings us to our third and final point, and that is this, God's providence in difficult times. You see, we don't see it yet here by the end of chapter one, but we are going to see it as we continue on. Right now, it seems that things are just bad and they're only getting worse. We don't see it yet, but here's what's gonna happen. As we go on in the book of Exodus, here's what we're gonna see. Amazingly, Every single one in the long run, every single thing that happened, every bad thing is going to backfire and it's going to turn out for good. You see, every bad thing that Pharaoh does, every one of them, not only backfires, but it accomplishes the exact opposite of what Pharaoh was trying to accomplish, right? Let me give you an example. It begins here. We saw how Pharaoh's persecution of enslaving the children of Israel only resulted in what? Only resulted in more strength, more numbers, a greater sense of solidarity amongst the Hebrews. And not only that, but an even greater example when, when he says, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill all the babies, all the baby boys. It, here's what's going to happen. Do you know what happens? Precisely because of Pharaoh's decree to kill all the baby boys, one Hebrew mother is going to make an attempt to rescue her baby, to save her baby boy. And that baby boy is going to end up getting to grow up, where? In Pharaoh's very own household, in his own household. And that baby boy is going to receive the exact training that he is going to need to become the liberator of the people. And guess who's going to pay for it? Pharaoh himself is going to pay the bill on that. How ironic is that? Talk about your plan backfiring. Pharaoh ordered the people, cast all the baby boys into the river. But he didn't say anything about baskets, right? And so one mom is going to put her baby boy in a basket and throw him into the river. Technically, she's doing what he, she's supposed to, right? And that basket just so happens to be found by Pharaoh's daughter who brings this baby home like a little puppy and says to dad, dad, look what I found. Can I keep it? And of course, dad can't say no to his little girl. And he says, sure, go ahead and keep that baby. And as a result, Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. He's trained in the best schools of Egypt. He's taught to be a leader. Pharaoh foots the bill for the whole thing, and yet Moses knows that he's a Hebrew. And one day, God is going to use this man, this baby, to lead Israel out of bondage and into freedom. Do you see what I'm saying? Every single thing that Pharaoh did backfired. And not only that, in the end, it accomplished just the opposite of the evil that he intended. 
You see what Pharaoh meant for evil, God used for good. Now think about how high the stakes are in this situation. I mean, the, these, this family, right? What's so special about this family? These are the people to whom God made a promise that one day through their family, someone special was going to come into the world, someone who would be a blessing to all nations, someone who would finally put an end to the curse of sin and death that had come upon creation when people rebelled against God, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the true liberator. We call him Jesus. So if Pharaoh succeeds in what he's trying to accomplish, you've got to understand, the stakes are super high. Not only is the future of the Hebrew people hanging in the balance, but the ultimate plan of God for salvation for the world is also hanging in the balance. And so where is God? Well, he's right there. He's right there in the middle of it, even though the people can't feel it, even though the people can't sense his presence with them, even in the darkest moment, he is there behind the scenes working all things for good for the fulfillment of his purposes. Now I want you to keep that in mind. Keep that in mind when you have those moments, when you ask that question, where is God? Where was God when that happened? Let me put it this way for you. It's as if God has two hands with which he works. On the one hand, there's the seen hand of miracles. And this one gets a lot of attention, right? I mean, burning bushes, rivers turning to blood, parting of the Red Sea. Miracles get a lot of attention. They're very flashy. But on the other hand, God has another hand that he works with, and that is the unseen hand of providence. Providence is God working behind the scenes, orchestrating those events in our lives, the things which you and me have no control over, but which are so incredibly important. Stuff like making sure that Moses is born to these particular parents at this particular time. Making sure that Moses and his little, you know, boat thing, his, his basket, that he floats right directly into the path of the daughter of Pharaoh. Well, who made that happen? You see, these are the things that are God's hand at work just as legitimately, just as profoundly, just as powerfully as the big and flashy miracles. And here's what's God, what God's providence means for you. It means that you can have an incredible confidence that even during those times when it seems that God is absent, oftentimes that is when he is doing his most profound work behind the scenes. You can have that confidence. You should have that confidence. Where was God when all these bad things were happening? He was right there. They couldn't sense it, but he was there. He was working all these things for good, for the fulfillment not only of his plan, but for their salvation, not only for their salvation, but ultimately for our salvation. Because many years later, another baby boy would be born. He was born into a surprisingly similar situation. His nation was ruled over by a foreign power. He was born at a time when this foreign ruling king had ordered that all the boys in that region be killed, and he also escaped. Ironically, he escaped to Egypt as a refugee for several years. But when he was older, he also became a liberator, only in a much greater sense. Moses set a nation free from slavery, but Jesus came and set people free from bondage to sin and death so that they could know true freedom, so that they could serve God, so they could know God intimately, and so they could live with him forever. And that, friends, is the message of the gospel. That according to God's plan throughout all of history, Jesus came in order to set you free. And it all culminated with his death on the cross on your behalf. He took your sins upon himself in order to set you free so that you could be made right with God. And the question for you today is this. Have you received 
that gift? Have you received that freedom? Are you experiencing that freedom in your life today? I'm going to pray for us that we would come to know that freedom and that we would walk in it. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray? Lord, we thank you for your plan for us. Lord, we see in that plan your great love for us. Lord, that though we are, we are more sinful than we ever dared to imagine, Lord, that the message of the gospel is that we are more loved by you than we could ever dare to hope. And so, Lord, we today, we want to say this. We want to say, Lord, we want to be free. We want to be free from whatever things have mastery over our lives other than you. We want to come to you. We want to change masters. We want to put on your yoke, which is pleasing, which is good, which is delightful. And we want to follow you and walk with you. And Lord, today I pray for anybody here today who would say, you know what? I have never really given my life to the Lord. I, I, I know some Bible stories and I, I've heard a lot of this stuff, but I've never made that decision in my life to say, yes, I will follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that today they would make that decision before leaving this room. And I pray for anyone here today who's saying, you know what? I, I do love Jesus and I have accepted the gospel, but my life is not free right now. There are things which have mastery over me, and I need to be set free. Lord, would you do that work in our lives by your spirit of setting us free now from those things which have mastery over us. Lord, that we could be free to follow you and to serve you alone. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. You have no-